Hi, and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast about people with remarkable stories of resilience, as well as experts in the field, along with myself, who share tips, strategies, and resources to help you power up your mental well-being. You can support our work by leaving a review or donating on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can also purchase our resources, including the imaginatively titled series of books, Resilience Unraveled, Leadership Unraveled, Management Unraveled, and Anxiety Unraveled at qedod.com forward slash extras. Free resources are also available on that page at qedod.com forward slash extras. Enough chat, let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by my next guest because uh, as much as anything else, it's nice to hear an English accent for a change. It's It's been a while and I'm joined today by Andrew McNeil. And good afternoon, Andrew. How are you? Hi, I'm good, Russell. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, well, it, you're English, so yeah, I don't have to have a long conversation about the weather across the pond. But where in the UK are you today? So I'm actually on the south coast. Um, I can wave to France from here, uh, south coast of the UK, and it's glorious sunshine. So feeling very fortunate this morning. That's good. Well, it's good to hear. I'm in the northeast, of course, where, you know, it's very close to our, our signature month. Uh, when I first moved here, I was told there was June and winter. So it's, we're nearly we're nearly out of it. We're nearly going to hit double double figures. So there you go. <laughs> well, it's a joy to talk to you. So um, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. So I am a leadership consultant and uh, try to help individuals and teams thrive under pressure. In essence, um, my uh, my role or my work is really around trying to identify how can teams both look after their well-being and improve their performance. I believe passionately that both are completely linked. Uh, we can't perform well if we're not well. And uh, so my uh, role in the work that I do is really around looking at tools and techniques to help help teams collaborate, to help them look after themselves and each other uh, and to and to enjoy what they're doing in an increasingly high pressure environment. We've, we find again, again, teams and leaders, are the group that I probably work most closely with are under immense pressure, either individually or collectively and they are often really struggling. So what I try to do is help bring along some tools and some ideas which can help them uh, in that work. Okay. So so uh, I'm guessing um, one of the tools you talk about most is mindfulness. So perhaps we can talk a bit about that. Sure. So um, a little bit then around how I discovered mindfulness might be useful. Uh, so I approach mindfulness as a complete sceptic. I think that's uh, important for my personal experience so about uh 2012 uh, i was in a fairly high pressure leadership role and uh, i found that i wasn't coping very well i was uh, under immense um sort of personal stress and i wasn't really present with my family i wasn't present at work i wasn't having a great time either physically or mentally so i had to find something which was going to help me navigate this seemingly impossible wall of uh, stress and pressure and i reached out to a dear friend of mine who happened to be a buddhist priest he wasn't when i knew him at school but he became one during the course of his life 
And I often joke with him that everybody should have a Buddhist priest as a mate. And I said, uh, do you have any ideas? And perhaps unsurprisingly, he suggested monks. And I have to say, when he said it, I, my heart sank uh, because I had seen his, his sort of pathway, his life pathway, and I totally respected it. Uh, but it really wasn't for me. And it's still not. <laughs> but when he suggested mindfulness, I thought, oh, it's just not my bag. It's just not, you know, it's not really. What anyway, I didn't have a lot of choice. I'd run out of options and I was pretty desperate. So I went on this two day weekend retreat and um, I sat in this retreat center. And during the course of these two days, something clicked that if it were my thoughts that were overwhelming me, perhaps mm -hmm. having a relationship to my thoughts might help. So I started practicing mindfulness and I found that it absolutely did help. I was able to uh, start to enjoy work again, be present with my family. I found myself very uh, rapidly really back in, in the flow and really thriving so much so. And I always say that mindfulness doesn't guarantee a promotion, but within about three months, I was offered a promotion and I had a, a bigger job. The only reason I mention that is because I then had a bigger job with more stress and was thriving in that role and the thing which had fundamentally changed was this practice of mindfulness thing but to be honest with you russell i told nobody about it because yeah. weird and i thought everybody else would think it was weird and i thought <laughs> i thought it genuinely would impact on my leadership and promotion prospects because everybody would think he's doing something a bit odd yeah. and eventually i went to a um a program uh, called the um, Major Project Leaders Academy, which is a, a sort of master's for project leaders. And in that, uh, I had no intention of telling anybody that I was practicing mindfulness, uh, but it kind of slipped out in evening conversations. People were talking about leadership stress and they're saying, how do you cope? And people are saying exercise and stuff like that. And I mentioned the M word and I kind of expected them to pick up their dinner trays and move to the next table, but bless them. They didn't. And a lot of them were so interested because they were after other ideas that they um, they wanted to know more about it. So that gave me the confidence to think, hang on, can this be brought into a leadership context or work context in a pragmatic, practical way, which can really help leaders navigate those high intensity situations? So at a practical level, then, um, because people. I mean, people come in here and talk about mindfulness all the time and. Uh, and it's great. And we have it from the, the spiritual side through to the very practical side. And I've sent you at the practical side. So at the practical side, what, what is mindfulness and, and how do we begin to actually do it? Because at its heart, it's very simple, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it's something which probably most people do without even noticing it in, in, a, in a fairly unstructured way. So Mindfulness can be defined perhaps, and John Kabat-Zinn described it, I'm going to misquote him now, but it's, it's something along the lines of uh, non-judgmental present moment awareness. Mm. And I love that description because it's so compact. There's so much in there. But in essence, what we're doing is we're noticing what's actually happening now. And we're noticing it, and we're also noticing when perhaps we want it to be different. But rather than just running to something being different, we're just noticing what it is now. Yeah. And we can do that very simply. And a, a way that sometimes I illustrate it is the last time that anybody listening to this was on a holiday and it was the end of the evening and they were just staring out of the balcony or the veranda and they were just noticing the sunset 
And they weren't even thinking about the day that's just gone by and they weren't thinking about the evening ahead. They were just noticing the scent in the air, the colors in the sky. Mm. In that moment, we're present. We're just noticing what's happening. So we will all have had mindful moments, I I, I suspect. I don't know. I don't know everyone. But my, my, my suspicion is. And so we can choose to create that. It's our capacity to build this intentional placement of attention somebody brilliantly once said that uh to choose where we place our attention in the attention economy is an act of rebellion i love that that is a good phrase yeah uh not mine i hate that but if we we can we we can train ourselves to choose to place our attention where we want to so on a very very practical level if we're going into a meeting which is high intensity or we're about to do a presentation if we choose to bring our attention just to the contact points of our feet on the floor, or if we're sitting down, the contact points with the chair, mm. and then broaden our attention out to the wide room, that is a moment of mindfulness because we're choosing to place our attention there. Yeah. And obviously that's just the very beginning and, and we can build it out and it's a life's work and I will never finish that work and I will continue to learn. But but that in essence is what we're doing. We're, we're we're choosing where we place our attention. Yes, um, and and it just so 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 you, it's, it is simple. And then people will say, "Of course, it's the life's work," and blah 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 blah. So so what is the life's work bit? Then? So there's another lovely quote, which is that mindfulness is easy. It's remembering to be mindful that's difficult, and mm. I think that's the challenge. Firstly, and and there are some mindfulness practitioners who 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 would take a different view, but my my experience has been that by practicing what might be described as formal practice, so sitting for 10, 20 minutes a day, and by sitting, I mean practicing a mindfulness exercise or exercise is the wrong word, but experiencing mindfulness for 10 or 20 minutes at the, at the start of the day or at the end of the day, whenever works for you. Um, it's kind of like going to the gym in that I don't, go to the gym, well, I don't go to the gym, to be honest with you, Russell, but I wouldn't go to the gym in order to um, become brilliant at leg presses uh, or or brilliant at press-ups per se. What I would go to the gym to do is be able to better move a wheelbarrow. And in the same way, my practice enables me at moments of high intensity to just be able to choose where I place my attention and navigate Oh, I can I can sense that fear response. I can I can notice in myself what's happening and I can choose to place my attention somewhere else. So it's kind of by practicing and practicing and practicing, we can build this capacity to, to place our attention. And that is definitely a life's work because my attention, even during this podcast, has been flitting about all over the place because I'm a human and that's what brains do. Yes. And 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 just as well that they do, because of course one of the things they're doing is protecting us and such like, and and using other forms of sensory information. And 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 so you've so so there's two ways of looking at this. We can start the individual or start the organisation level. And I know you've written a book about organisational mindfulness. So should we start there at the big picture and then work in? So how does an organ? I'm assuming an organisation becomes mindful by having mindful people, but maybe I'm wrong there. Well, I think. I think an organization becomes mindful by, yes, definitely having mindful people, but also being open 
to having a conversation about mindfulness and about how you can bring it in to the daily routine. So it's a cultural thing, really. Yeah. It's that idea of culture eat, eating strategy for breakfast, you know, having the culture right and being able to have an open uh, an open conversation about something like mindfulness, I think is absolutely key. And I think for me, the reason or where my book came from was trying to explain mindfulness to a very cynical audience. So again, I think there's a perception that mindfulness is just about well-being. It is definitely, in my experience, has had huge advantages in well-being. But it also has, um, I, again, in my experience, really clear benefits in terms of performance. So um, in the book, there is a model which has four boxes and it has a box which says mindful of the vision. And the reason why it says that is when we're in the weeds, when we're delivering something under intense pressure, remembering why we're doing it, um, and that may be just to build market share, it may be to um, support a particular group in society, it may be for any number of reasons, um, but whatever the vision of the organisation or the vision of the programme is, if we lose sight of it, we can lose sense of purpose and we can also, we can also be doing the wrong things. Yeah. So the next box is mindful of delivery and by that I mean any leader uh, well every leader that I've ever spoken to has had the experience of having too many things to do in a day mm -hmm. so how can we choose to bring our attention to which of the things are going to actually achieve that vision so being selective and bringing our attention to delivery so effectively delivering the third box is mindful of our team so recognizing and noticing and bringing our attention to who's struggling who's either underperforming, but who's who, who might be really, uh, yeah, struggling at the moment. I think we all learned a lot about that during COVID yeah. and identifying in 2D versions where people are signaling that they're, they're really not in a great place. And then mindful of ourselves. And this is the oxygen mask principle, which most people I think will be aware of. When you're on a plane, people say, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you try and help anybody else instinctively, we might think, no, I'm going to try and reach out and help that person. No, you're not. You're going to pass out. So put your oxygen mask on. So it's, it's being mindful of ourselves and, 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 and knowing enough about ourselves and how to have toolkit ready to help us. So the reason I described that model is because the intention of the book is to frame mindfulness in a way that can help organizations support its people and deliver its objectives. Yeah. And uh, within that, there's a whole load of stuff about how do you implement cultural change and how do you do that specifically for mindfulness? Yeah. So yes, mindful people, but mindful culture as well. And that's interesting because mindfulness by implication, and I'm feel free to correct me here, is, is the pausing, the stopping, the noticing, the um, identifying. But of course, what you do next is actually the critical bit. So you can be very mindful, but very poor at implementation. And and so there's there's two sides of the there's the what and how always with these things, isn't there? And um, but what I'm 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 assuming what you'll say is that if you're noticing more correctly, the the chance of getting the implementation thing right is going to be improved because actually you're you're noticing the right things. Well, I think we well. I have often experienced organizations being shocking at noticing mm. and very active in doing things 
whether they're the right things or not is a whole yeah. different kettle of worms. But it's always the same things. That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. And 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 just being very busy. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that you know the busyness is actually very helpful. Uh, there's lots to do. There's always lots to do. But is it the right stuff? And I think if we took a bit more time to notice what we're doing. Hmm. So a, an example which is sometimes used is a, a program board or a business board, an executive board, something like that. You could you could describe that as a as a practice in shared mindfulness. Mm. If you look at a program board, what are you trying to do? You're trying to um, bring your attention to something, the information being put in front of you. Um, you're trying to uh, um, come to a decision non-judgmentally, ideally. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to be present for the purposes of having an effective meeting. Yeah. What actually happens in most of my experience is people are on their phones, people are actually, even if they're not on their phones, they're thinking about the last email or the next meeting. They're, they bring a whole load of judgment about the materials that they're receiving. Yeah. And they're not even present in the meeting, really. They might be physically there, but they're not present. So how many of the top table meetings which people have are actual are people even there? So the capacity to notice, oh, my attention's gone off. Oh, I'm worried about the next meeting. Oh, I, sh I actually have views about all this, but they're not founded in anything. The fact that we, we might foster that capability of non-judgment, of clear attention, could be a game changer in, in some very, very senior settings. And, and that's fascinating because you've highlighted me something there that's um, interesting because the word judgment is key here because judgment implies the process of judging which in other words is to have made a decision and to have ruled one way or another but what we have to be able to bring to meetings is analytical skills to be able to understand the situation that's going on so i can see why you would you'd mark judgment down but lots of leaders believe they're there for judgment they're there for making a decision a decision a decision implies judgment but actually for me um I think that judgment is a is a mixed a mixed up process. So I like the way you're 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 pulling it apart because we still need to analyze even in that present moment. Analysis is part of what we'll do. But if we if we've judged, we're using that confirmation bias rather than that sense of actually um, you know looking at the information in front of us and thinking actually what does that truly mean? Hundred percent. So I think it's it's. It's that bringing judgment, which is already made before you've had the information in front of you, yeah. um, which is the problem. Absolutely, decisions, that's what leaders, are, you, you could argue that's what leaders are for. And that is, in my experience, certainly part of what leaders are for, making the decisions, coming to a conclusion. But doing so in a fully informed way, again, in my experience, is more likely to have the desired outcome or a favourable outcome. And of course, it's a it's a brain pattern, it's a brain bias to have decided what you want and find the evidence to support that view, and it's and 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 I suppose you're going to tell me that mindfulness is that thing where you notice yourself doing that, and you pause that process. Well, we can learn. Yes, in essence, I think we can learn a lot more about our own biases, and I I've also done work uh, with um, EDI programs to try to 
you know, if unconscious bias specifically is the problem, then um, being more awake might yeah. help us with that. So absolutely, if we if we know more about how our minds work and we and we take some more time to actually notice what's going on with our minds, then we can we can choose what feels right and what feels unhelpful. Mm. And the beauty of what you're talking about is that actually it works brilliantly in a smaller organization as well because often people talk about massive organizations but you can be a small restaurant with four people and you can actually be much more mindful about the service you're giving and the quality of the food you're, you're producing and actually it's it's much more within the control of a smaller group actually um whereas actually some of these pangalactic organizations they they're all perfect so you don't need to worry about that so much <laughs> you can hear the irony dripping i hope from my voice but uh, <laughs> i don't know if it's irony or sarcasm who knows um I, I yeah I, I absolutely hear you and I think I think you're right I think it's something which is within you know it needs to be done wisely it needs to be done thoughtfully uh, in terms of bringing mindfulness into a culture one of the things which I mentioned in the book is you know if we get to a place where mindfulness is so uh so pervading um that it's the norm then we need to be sensitive that some people won't want to take part in it it's it's a very interesting point. Which that. I... Yeah, sorry, it's cut across you. I didn't. I think we just lost. A, I had an IT glitch. Here. It's one of the things I was thinking about just as you were talking about that because I wonder if actually human fallibility and the foibles of leadership allows us to actually be less mindful because it's useful as well. Because actually, you can argue that AI is the most mindful process of all, because it's the least judgmental, and it's the most based on objective data. I mean, no data is objective on the internet, but you know what I mean. So I just wonder if mindfulness is forcing us closer to an, uh, being replaced by an AI system, whereas actually being a bit more emotional, a bit, a bit more irrational, can also be useful as well. But the point is to choose to be one or the other situationally. So without going down an AI rabbit hole, and I'm no expert on AI, but my understanding is one of the biggest problems is that it's programmed by humans. Therefore, the fact that it may be unbiased is 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 open to challenge. But I um and 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 indeed subjective. Um, but that aside, um, yeah, it's all about choice. It's all about choice. It's um, it's about being able to choose to respond rather than to react an expression which is used all the time uh, by mindfulness teachers and i think if we're able to um notice when we are being driven by our habitual reactions uh, and and our unconscious biases uh, or being aware of biases and and choose a, to do something else or or to choose at all is is a step in the right direction and i think i think that's yeah, that's absolutely critical. It's at the core of this. I think a lot of what we do is so instinctive. You know, I often talk about um, the amygdala hijack and how mm. you know, we're, we're crossing a road, we see a bus, we stop. We don't think, oh, there's a bus, I must stop my legs, I will stop. It just happens. Yeah. And if you translate that to every fear response in every difficult meeting you've ever been in with any client who's given you a hard time, what do you think is going on in the body? There's a huge amount of fear response. So. Yeah. When that's tra translated in the impact into our cognitive abilities, what we're saying is, or what I'm saying is, if we notice that we are subject to these things, if we notice our habitual reactions, 
then we can choose more to do about it. That's not to say that the instinctive reaction of get out of the way of the bus isn't a good thing. I'm not yeah. suggesting you should pause and meditate and then get hit by the bus. What I'm saying is that in a business setting, we have the same fear response that we always have as, as yeah. and being aware of that and bringing that into our equation, bringing that into our capacity to choose. That's the key. Uh, yeah, well, hard to disagree with that, I'm afraid. So. Uh, I think let's let's let people engage with your content. So where can they find the book? Where can they find out more about you? So uh, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's called Organizational Mindfulness, a how-to guide. Um, and, and just to leap in there for a second, for our American friends, it's organizational, it's spelled with an S, just so we're clear. It, it is, it is. But I'm, uh, for our American friends, it is, I believe, in the search with a Z as well. So. Oh, well I try to help. I try to help. But yes, thank you. Very good spot. Uh, so that's that's the name of the book. Um, and also I work through uh, LX Leaders, um, which is lxleaders.com. That is LX followed by leaders, all one word. And, uh, and we provide uh, a whole range of services for teams, uh, individuals uh, around um, mindfulness training, coaching, teamwork and particularly building the kind of skills which I've just described specifically to try to help people thrive in high stress environments both to perform but also to stay stay well and enjoy enjoy that intensity um, as, as as well as navigate it brilliant well thank you for spending time with us today I really enjoyed that I often judge the quality of my um, podcast guests by how many notes I wrote and so you probably discovered that you probably saw me writing notes so that's a really good sign so thank you I enjoyed it I'm sure the guests do it too so have a look at that book on Amazon and LX leaders was it .com or .co.uk just remind me I think it's .com right I think it is as well just making sure that's there we'll we'll link to it in the show notes anyway Andrew thanks for spending time with us today I've really enjoyed it it's been great Thanks, Russell. It's been great to see you. You take care. Hi, thanks for listening. Hopefully that was a useful and interesting episode. As I said earlier, you can support our work by leaving a review, which does drive enhanced exposure. Or you can donate on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can purchase our series of books all about unravelling resilience, leadership, management and anxiety at qedod.com forward slash extras along with some other free resources available on the site. We've also got a Patreon page and you of course can send us questions, ideas, thoughts, conversations and fresh subjects at info at qedod.com. Hopefully there's something there for you. Catch you next time around. <laughs>